0: And uh, we've been looking at two different types of fear. The fear of God versus the fear of man. And we've looked at Old Testament passages up to this point, specifically the book of Proverbs. Today we close out in the book of Matthew. She actually read a reference from the book of Matthew, chapter 10, which is where we'll be. You can go ahead and turn there. We'll get there in just a moment. I will be reading from the English Standard Version or the ESV this morning, Matthew 10, 24 through 33. So you can go ahead and get your finger in the Bible or get it pulled up on your on your device that you have with you today uh, we're looking at fear and focus this week so we looked at fear as a bad thing fear as a good thing we we started out the month asking the question what is fear and we wanted to rightly define it Today we want to look at fear and focus from the lips of Jesus. So the passage in Matthew chapter 10 actually in most of our Bibles is in red. It's because that's what Jesus actually spoke and was written down later in the Gospels. So Jesus speaking to the disciples specifically about what fear we should have versus the fear we shouldn't have. I was thinking about how to close out today, came across a great illustration. How many of you are familiar with a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs? A couple of you are. If you have never heard that, it's F-O-X-E, Fox Book of Martyrs, Fox's Book of Martyrs. Look it up. It's a timeless classic, but what it does is it it kind of chronicles uh, Christian martyrs from the first century on. Now, not exhaustively, but some of the more famous cases. And it talks about how people stood for their faith in Jesus Christ when every odd and every person was against them to the point of martyrdom. Now martyrdom is dying for what you believe in, specifically Christianity. It's dying for your faith in Jesus Christ. There have been countless times throughout human history where people have been uh, accused of many different things, but accused of being a Christian used to be a bad thing, and it actually seemingly is a bad thing today, depending on where circles you're in. And you, Some of us are, are kind of squeamish to say we're Christians in front of certain groups because of the ridicule, the mockery, or some of the name-calling that we might, we might get. Um, but we don't have to worry that, that, that some people do. We don't have the same kind of worries that some people do in other countries, even today. Did you know Christian martyrdom today is, is actually at a higher rate than it's ever been? People dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's higher today, across the globe than it has ever been in human history no matter what time period you want to think of today 21st century you look at martyrdom now we don't hear a lot of those cases because well the media doesn't highlight those cases often but they're out there Voice of the Martyrs is another good place to look. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I have a subscription to Voice of the Martyrs. They send me uh, a magazine and they show me some of the most persecuted places across the globe. And some of the places you may not even realize are places of persecution or, or, um, you know, great heavy weight against Christians. As I was looking again to bring fear into focus today, I wanted us to look at this idea of, of what it means to really stand in the face of human fears, but fear God more than you fear humans. So I came across uh, this, this sermon by J.C. Ryle called Not Corrupting the Word. That's the title of his sermon. He gives this illustration about the meaning and the purpose of faithfulness in the midst of pressure and persecution. Listen to what he writes in his sermon. In the 16th century, which would have been in the 1500s, there was a Protestant reformer in England by the name of Hugh Latimer. He was known as the great preacher of his day in England. And as a result, he had a myriad of opportunities to speak across the country and across the kingdom at the time. Uh, Once he found out that he was to preach before King Henry VIII of England, King Henry VIII heard about Latimer and heard how great an orator he was, and he was going to show up at Latimer's church this one fateful Sunday. And Latimer was posed in his mind with a question of himself, what am I going to do? Because the message that God laid on his heart for the very day that King Henry VIII would be in his service was not a message that the king would have liked to have heard. As he began his sermon on that one fateful Sunday, he said, Latimer, this is him speaking to the congregation. Latimer, Latimer, do you remember that you're speaking before the high and mighty King Henry VIII? Who has the power to command you to be sent to prison? Who can have your head cut off if it please him? Will you not take care to say nothing that would offend royal ears? He then paused and continued, Latimer, Latimer, do you not remember that you're speaking before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? Before him at whose throne Henry VIII will also stand, before him to whom one day you will have to give an account of yourself. Latimer, Latimer, be faithful to your master and declare all of God's word. You see, Latimer faced a choice that one fateful morning. Would he preach what man wanted to hear? Or would he preach what Christ would have him preach, regardless of the audience that stood before him? Latimer did take his stand for the truth. He preached the word that God laid on his heart that morning, right in front of King Henry VIII. But eventually, Latimer, one of these great reformers of the 15th century, would not find his death at the hands of King Henry VIII, but King Henry VIII's daughter, Queen Mary, also known as Bloody Mary, in case you're curious. So I have this question as we kick off today. What are your allegiances? Where are your allegiances? What, what holds your loyalty? What relationships do you have in life that are non-negotiable that you would never give up on? What is the most important relationship in your life that you would never give up on? No matter what pressures you face, no matter what difficulties you, you, you stand against because of that relationship. When push comes to shove and all the chips are down, the question is, what is it you're willing to risk your life for? This seems silly today, but maybe it's a little less silly today in light of current affairs across our nation. That maybe, just maybe, the fight has come from overseas to our backyard. And that maybe someday in your lifetime, you may stand before accusers who say either recant your faith in Christ or get thrown in jail. Or worse, be beaten to a pulp, maybe even to the edge of death. What are you willing to risk your life for? Matthew chapter 10, starting with verse 24. Let's look at the words of Christ. Jesus says a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. Now let me pause there for a minute. In light of racial tensions, the servant-master theme that we're talking about here is this doulos. Doulos is servant or it can be translated as slave. In the day and the age of Jesus... It could mean somebody who owns somebody else, but more often than not, whenever Jesus uses this idea of doulos, which is translated as servant here, it's more specifically related to this idea of submitting yourself in service to somebody else. And so the master... Uh, word he uses there is like teacher, leader, someone who is over you, not as Lord to impress upon you what they want, but somebody you have submitted yourself to under the leadership of willingly. And so Jesus is saying a disciple or a student is not above his teacher, nor is a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul... How much more will they malign those of the household? Now Jesus is speaking, and oftentimes when he would speak, a lot of people had no clue what he was talking about because they didn't have ears to hear, they weren't really listening to what he had to say, or they were merely listening at a surface level. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Somebody talks to you, and it just goes in one ear and out the other because you just like, I don't, I don't. And it's not that you're dumb. I'm not saying that. It's just that you're not hearing with ears to really hear what they have to say. Jesus spoke in parables. He spoke in different types of, of stories to bring about deeper truth. And he would often say, you with ears to hear, listen to what I'm saying. Why would he say that? Because he knew people wouldn't catch it. And it's not that Jesus was just trying to play mind games with people, but he knew oftentimes that if he spoke plain language to people, they'd be like, yeah, whatever, and continue on with their day. The best teaching that I've ever sat under were those that drove me deeper, those that didn't just speak over my head, but told things in such a way that forced me into a whole different mindset. Some of the most difficult teachers I sat under would use stories and parables to relay greater truth. And sometimes I didn't get the meaning of those stories until even a week later at times when I'm riding on the riding mower or something like that. And we'd be like, oh, I know what that means. You ever had those experiences? No? <laughs> Sorry about your luck. Anywho, you don't know what you're missing out on. Just saying. But those revelations where God finally pulls the veil back, where you're really ready to listen and to see and to hear, and then all of a sudden, boom, and it's this light bulb experience. I live for those moments. I don't know if you do, but I do. That's why I'm an avid reader. I constantly want to continue to learn. I hope that I die with a book in my hand. Again, you don't know what you're missing. No! Well, I hope you die with a Bible in your hand. How about that? That is a book. All right. So let's continue. He says, if they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, that's weird. It sounds like you have a mouthful of rocks or marbles or something, and you're trying to say something about bubbles. No, it's Beelzebul. We're going to get into the depth of that in a minute. It is actually the name of a false god which I'll unpack for you in a little bit. How much more will they malign those of his household? Now, Jesus is referring to himself as master and Lord, because that's what he is. He's the teacher. He is the master. He is the Lord. And his students are the disciples. And he says, guess what? You know what they're calling me out on the streets? They're calling me a false god. Actually, they're calling me the devil, is what they're calling me. And then verse 26, he goes on to say, so have no fear of them. Have no fear of the people that call you names. How do you, do you enjoy being called names? Have you ever been called names? I mean, when I was a kid, I was called a lot of names. I didn't like, but even as an adult, I'm called names I don't like. When you stand in a position to where people can give opinions about you, whether it's on stage or off, or whether you stand in a position in a school in a classroom and people know you or know what you look like and they can give opinions about what you look like you get called names all the time and what is what does jesus say when people call your call you names and try to malign you or slander you or to mar your reputation what should be your response don't fear them I talked last week about bad fear or the fear of men that we have and some of the ways that we respond in that kind of fear. Do you remember what I was talking about? I talked about jealousy, bitterness, resentfulness, rage, anger. I talked about uh, over-controlling personalities. I talked about uh, a fear of, of not, uh, not being accepted or, or desire of being approved of all the time. See, that's what bad fear drives us to. And so what do we do in our human fear whenever somebody calls us a name? What is your initial gut reaction? Well, oftentimes what we want to do is jump back. We want to go in defensive mode. But Jesus says, nah, don't give them the time of day. Don't fear those people. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Okay, Jesus, can you unpack this for me? I have no clue what you're talking about. Revealing and darkness and light and, and rooftops. What's the deal with that? So what's Jesus talking about here? He's saying, right now, you don't realize what's getting ready to happen. I've tried to tell you I'm going to die and, uh, and I'll come back again. Right now, it seems like it's going to be pretty, pretty tough. But I want you to reveal my message in the darkness so that there can be light. One of these days, not too long from now, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be crucified, dead, buried, but I'll rise from the grave, and then I want you to shout it from the housetops. In that day and age, the Jewish homes had flat roofs. That was actually a place where you'd go up and rest during uh, the evening time or early morning to go have your cup of coffee. I'm sure they'd I don't know if they drank coffee in that day, but whatever they would do to get ready for the morning, sometimes you'd hang your laundry out upon the roof, and it was a flat roof. So don't think of the roofs that you have today on your homes that are pitched. When he's talking about going up to the rooftop, you get up there and not, not just sit and relax. I want you to shout this message from the rooftop. Do not fear those who, kill, who can kill the body. Do not fear those who can kill the body but not the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. <laughs> Is that really saying what I think it's saying? <laughs> Wait a minute. So I don't need to fear the person who can just kill my body. So if I'm standing before a firing squad, what about all the martyrs that I talked about earlier? I shouldn't fear the one who could take my, just my body. I should fear the one. But that you, Brandon, you said that the fear of the Lord... Is not this fear of punishment. You already said that. So what do we do with that passage? That seems like a contradiction. I'll come back to that. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges... Now this is a tough one. All right? Anyone who acknowledges me before men or people I should say, I also will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's a tough one to chew on. We'll get to that. R.T. France explains fear this way from this passage. Two types of fear are contrasted here. Fear of men is a self-interested cowardice, but fear of God is a healthy response of awe and obedience in the face of the Almighty, and one which is positively committed throughout the Bible. Here's the key point, and uh, if you haven't fallen asleep you can after this, all right? Here's the key point this morning. It's the wise person has a proper perspective of fear that keeps them focused on what's most important. Let me say that again. The wise person has a proper perspective on fear that keeps them focused on what's most important. What is a proper perspective of fear? We've been talking about this month. It's a holy fear and reverence for God that leads us into obedience and love of God that draws us into his holy presence and awestruck wonder That's the kind of fear we should have, and when we have that fear, all other fears dissolve, or at least they should. Now, it doesn't mean that you won't have other fears encroach upon you to try to push out the fear of the Lord in your mind, well, what's going to happen at the election time here in a few months? What's going to happen at the resurgence of the coronavirus? Or what's going to happen about what's happening in Seattle? They've not taken back that city. What's going to happen? And we get these fears that start to foment and, 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 and consume our thoughts. And, and God says, do you, do you fear those things more than you fear me? Because if you do, you'll get the result of what those fears have to offer, which is desperation, distraction, and depression. I mentioned this last week. It's like have you you remember the story of Peter who walked on the water? So Jesus was coming late at night. The wind and the waves were rocking the boat. Jesus said to the guys, go on over across to the other side. I'll meet up with you. Later on the night, Jesus comes walking on the water. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. And so he didn't go around the shore. He sighted. I think I'm going to walk on the water tonight. So he walks on the water. He gets close enough. He's about to pass them by. The disciples look out and see this faint silhouette of an image, thinks it's a ghost. And lo and behold, they scream like little girls. Ah! Like that. I'm sorry. That was really misogynistic to say they scream like, they scream, they scream like big men. Oh! There, I insulted both, both genders. All right. They scream and they say, oh no, oh no, there's a ghost. And, and Jesus says, oh, it's not a ghost, fear, fear not. And Peter's like, oh, oh yeah, well, if it's really you, Jesus, call me to walk out to you on the water. You know, how many of you are the ones that act before you think or speak before you think? Me too. All right. So here's Peter. If it's you, call me to come out to you on the water. Probably not even thinking about what he's saying. And, it, and Jesus says, Well, come on out. Just like that. <laughs> and Peter hops over the side, and lo and behold, what does he start to do? He's strutting along. He's, he's like, this is, Well, actually, he's looking at Jesus. This is amazing. Woo, Jesus, look at me go, and he's strutting his stuff, and, and then I think reality sets in, because you know, you act sometimes before you think, and then he's probably thinking, oh no, what did I, what am I, how am I, what is, in the wind, and the waves, and what happens when he takes his eyes off Jesus? He begins to sink. What does fear of men and fear of things do to us? It starts to drown us. But when fear of the Lord is in proper perspective, we can walk on the water with Jesus in full sight. See, when you take your eyes off Jesus, when you take your eyes off the Lord, you begin to sink amidst a fear, a sea of fears and emotions that are distressing. I know we all deal with this. We fear for our kids' safety if we're parents. We don't want anything to happen to our kids. One of the prayers of parents is, please, Lord, let me die before they do. Maybe you have never prayed that. You may have prayed, Lord, let them die today. And depending on the circumstance or situation, I've never prayed that toward M- Micaiah. I've never prayed that against you. Cameron, I have, but not, um, I'm just, I love you, Cameron. I would never pray that for you. Anywho, so we, we have these fears that tend to override our sensibilities, Correct. But when we fear the Lord and we have a holy awe and reverence of God, and that is the one thing that solidifies who we are because we know whose we are, then we can rise above all of the muck and mire of the fallen world. Guess what? Do you you know you live in a fallen world? Did you know that? Did you know the world is corrupt and evil and bad things happen to good people? And we've already talked about the good people scenario a few weeks ago. If you don't remember that, you can go back and look in the archives. But do you know what I'm talking about? It's a bad world. It's not good. Well, then what about God? God is all good, all loving. And this is where God gets a bad rap because you want me to fear God and to have a holy awe and reverence of him, but he won't do anything about the evil in the world. Why would you want me to fear him and have some respect of him? He doesn't have respect to me. Look at all the stuff that's going on and all the innocent people that are getting hurt. What do we do with that? How do we unpack that? There's a lot of people I know that walk away from the Lord because of that one issue. In the 21 years of ministry, I have yet to find anyone walk away from the faith for any other reason except for that one. They cannot reconcile in their mind how evil the world is in contrast to a good, holy, loving God. But then we have this John 3:16 passage that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, God's salvation of the world isn't in the way that you might like it, but what more do you think he could do? When, I, I, when, I'm, when people are confronting me with this dialogue about what do we do when there's a good, loving, and holy God uh, in heaven and there's an evil, corrupt world, why doesn't he just put a stop to it? Because of his mercy. Well that still doesn't make any sense. What about the innocent people? And again, I'm going to go back to this and it's going to sound really harsh, but what does Rome, Romans 3:23 say? What did Paul tell us in Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. So, is anybody innocent? Anyone? Go to 1 John. If you read 1 John, the first 3 chapters, he says if any of you claim to not have sin, you're a liar. And you're calling God a liar. Those are pretty heavy words from one of Jesus' disciples. There's nobody innocent. And it's only by God's good graciousness that he stepped out of eternity and into time and said, this is the one way I'm going to save everybody and everything. But I can't force it on you. You have to willingly accept it. You have to receive it as a gift. You cannot take it. You cannot steal it. You cannot borrow it. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. All you have to do is to believe in me, and that shed blood on the cross will cover that multitude of sins in your life. And you could be set free, not just spiritually, but physically. Doesn't mean you won't have temptations, but you know that there's a way out of temptation. I'm really putting this off. Let me go to this. There are three fear knots in this passage of scripture and one fear. Three fear knots and one fear. The three fear knots Jesus talk about talks about here is do not fear being maligned, do not fear death, and do not fear that God has abandoned you or left you alone. That is the three fear knots in a nutshell. So let's look at this. Jesus says we should not fear those who would seek to malign or slander us. The word Beelzebul is a derivative or a change or a spin on the word in the Roman culture that existed prior to that culture in 2 Kings chapter 2 for Beelzebub. Have you ever heard the term Beelzebub? Okay, Beelzebub actually is translated Lord of the Flies, not the book, but Lord of the Flies. It later got switched to Lord of Dung, D-U-N-G, Lord of Feces. All right? And then by the time you get to the New Testament, which is a few hundred years later, you have Beelzebul, which means prince of demons. So these are all derivatives based on different cultures at different time periods that adopted these gods from previous cultures and just slowly changed the name and meaning of them. That's what the Greeks did. To, that's what the Romans did. They just adopted the gods of other cultures they conquered because they were pantheistic in their religions. And so they just changed their names slightly and gave them different connotations. Now, they're calling Jesus, Beelzebul, prince of demons. Now, not in this gospel, but in another gospel, when they're calling him the prince of demons, he calls them out on this. He says, you guys are, well, he didn't say idiots. That's Brandon's translation. You guys are really dumb. I want you to think, Jesus is sitting there. I want you to think of the logic of what you're saying. You're calling me prince of demons, but I'm casting out demons why would i cast out demons if i'm the prince of demons i'd want them to take hold of every one of y'all or yuns right y'all's fine thank you i'd want them to take hold of all of you here's the deal a house divided against itself will not stand guess what abraham lincoln did not come up with that quote he borrowed it from scripture he borrowed it from jesus Jesus says, you guys are ludicrous. I mean, you're not even thinking through the logic of truth at this point. All you're doing is picking your noses and throwing things out to accuse others that is blatantly false. That never happens today. I mean, seriously, you can't find anywhere where people aren't always telling There's truth-telling on social media There's truth-telling on the airwaves and on our TVs. It's all truth all day long, 24-7. And if you have mind enough, you can actually put your mind to work, do the hard work, and actually find real truth that might be buried beneath a pile of dung. So what do we do? I believe that God's word is the sole basis for truth because God is truth. Jesus says, John 14:6, you probably get so sick of hearing me say this, but this was a life-altering verse for me when I began to question and doubt whether God existed. And here's why. Because when I was reading through that, I was in the throes of training for ministry and all that crisis of faith in college, was being confronted by a myriad of different ideas in, in, in the collegiate arena, and and I had this really wrestle. I had to wrestle with, is God really God? Is there a God, and is God's Word really God's Word, or is it just a facsimile or a good book? And I came across this passage that I'd read before in the whole chapter of 14. And right smack dab in the uh, the beginning of that, Jesus is talking to his disciples, actually trying to show them who he really is. He's not some mere man. And in John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Now, he doesn't just stop there. It's a comma. No one comes. No one. Not just a couple people. Not just a group of people. Not just a certain ethnicity. No one comes to the Father except through me or by me. And if Jesus said that exclusive of a statement, and I can pull it apart, look at the Greek or the Aramaic, and try to figure out, is that what he really means? And he does then I either have to accept that as truth or reject it. And if I reject that, then I have to lay the whole Bible aside. And I was really conflicted. What do I do with that? Is he a God? Is he not? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? Is he not? And the very foundation in the core of this sentence, if he is the way, if he is the truth, and if he is the life, Would he not have made other ways possible if he necessarily could have? God is God. He can do anything, right? Are you hearing me? Did I lose you in any of this? Okay. So if God is God and he can do anything, then if he can tell me that this is the only way, do I believe that truly that is the only way? See, Jesus, God, who is truth, cannot be contradictory. The law of non-contradiction. We can go into that, look it up, check it out. But here's the deal. God cannot be full of sin because God is all holy and all truth. Because if he is full of sin, he would not be God. God cannot make a rock bigger than he can lift because that's ludicrous. It doesn't fall into the logic of reality and truth. So that's a nonsensical statement. Now, we could go on and on and on trying to test these theories, but if God is truly God, then he is perfect, he is all-loving, he is all-holy. And if he is all of those things, either I get on board or I reject it. He would have made as many ways possible if he could because he is that loving and that holy, but there was no other way. And so there was, if there's no other way, then either I accept that and step into his truth, and willingly submit myself to that truth, or I just step away and live my life, eat, drink, and be merry, because someday, maybe even tomorrow, I might die. The sad truth of the fact is, A lot of people walk away because they want there to be more. Jesus made it as simply as clear as possible. The world muddies the waters, not Jesus. God has made it extremely clear what he expects, what he cares for, and who he loves. And he's willing to die for what he believes in. And guess what he believes in? You! If he didn't believe in you, he would not has subjected himself to such great torture. But he believes in you, and he made a way. And because he made a way, we now have free access to the throne room of grace to step into this humbly, willingly to admit, I can't do what he did. I've been trying my whole life. And some people come to the end of the rope and still aren't willing to submit to him. He is at the end of you, but until you come to the end of you, you will never receive that free gift of hope, salvation, and restoration. The other fear not is those that kill the body and not the soul. Why do you worry about the one who could kill the body and not the soul? Fear death. How many of you fear death? It's okay to raise your hand, because I don't know what it's going to feel like, and i You know, I I believe in what lies beyond, but some of us may even be questioning, I don't know, I mean, I, I think I'm saved, I'm not sure. It'd be good to know, right? So what does the Bible say about wanting to know so that our soul is saved? Well, we read again in Romans, Paul says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus is God's son, and you confess with your lips that God raised him from the grave, Guess what? You can be saved. See, it's a heart issue. And it's an issue of confessing that before people. Hide it under a bushel? No. No, sir. I'm going to let it shine, right? Sorry, reverting back to childhood days. What about this fearing of God who can cast both the body and the soul in hell? That sounds unloving i want you to hear me on this god loves you enough to not force himself on you you've heard me say this before he says if you deny me before people you leave me no choice i'm going to have to deny you before my father and it's not the na 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 boo boo if you do this then i'm going to do that that's not what he's doing okay let me explain what jesus is doing here he's saying he's saying listen If you have a holy reverence and awe of God who holds you in the palm of his hand, nothing's going to go wrong. You're going to be okay, no matter what people do to the body. But here's what happens. If you reject me, if you walk away from me, if you deny me, You leave me no choice because you, in essence, have said, I don't care about you, your safety, your provision, your protection. I'm done. And you walk away. You leave me no choice. I have to deny you because you're not there. Does that make sense? Now, I want you to hear me out on this. I'm, this is not some cycle babble or just parsing words. I want you to see the root and the cause and the effect and all of that of the Word of God. He's not saying a tit for tat kind of thing. I'll do this and you do that. He's saying you leave me no choice. If you exempt yourself from my grace, if you reject me to your dying breath, if you deny me before others to the point that there's no return. You leave me no choice. I can't say something that's not true. You have basically exempted yourself from salvation by walking away from me. And I have no other choice than to stand before my Father and say, they're not here. I never really got to know them because they never let me. This holy reverence and fear and awe of the one we stand in front of who holds us, or or let me say, who desires to hold us in the palm of his hands. We can subject ourselves to his provision and live in the palm of his hands, or we can exempt ourselves, be cut off for an eternity. And lastly, don't fear the one who's uh, don't fear that God has left you alone. How many of you, how many of you wrestle with feel, the the feelings of God? And what I mean by that is I don't feel God. I don't feel his presence. I don't feel, I don't feel, I don't feel. And, and a lot of what our culture has really ingrained in us from birth is this idea that it's all about our feelings and emotions because feelings and emotions can be so real, can't they? They really can drive us sometimes. But sometimes they, when we allow our fears, emotions, and feelings to drive us, they drive us off the cliff, don't they? Or they drive us off the road, into the weeds, so to speak. What do we do when we allow those feelings and emotions to drive us? They don't always lead us in the right direction. But what if we allowed truth, Jesus, to... Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) Sorry. Again, all these analogies. What if we allowed him to have the driver's seat? The truth, the reality of truth and rationality and logic... What if we allowed him, who is truth, to be the one who's driving, even when our emotions run rampant? If, uh, how many of you, are, many of you are, are married here today? What would happen in your relationship if you allowed feelings to drive your relationship? Some of you have been married a lot longer than others. You probably would have divorced a long time ago. Because do you always wake up in the morning and look at each other and say, "I am so madly in love with you"? <laughs> Some of you do. I'm not saying you don't. But let's be honest: when the gnarly breath comes along, and the hair, or the hairlessness, as the days—I mean, there's there's a part of that where feelings should not rule, rule us. I think commitment is an all-time low in our culture because we're driven by feelings you see Jesus is not a feeling or an emotion he is a person more than a person he is God in the flesh who now dwells at the right hand of the Father advocating on your and my behalf until the end of time when he will come again to set the record straight and set all things new but until that time he's advocating to the Father on our behalf saying Father, I died for them. I died for them. And he's interceding and praying on our behalf. And so while we wait, we live with the understanding and the belief. This is where faith comes into play. And it's not some knockoff version of what you know, emotions should be. This, this idea of faith is that when all emotions are off the rails, when everything else is just way off in the weeds, we proceed in faith. We trust the word and what it says. We trust Jesus was the word made flesh who dwelt among us. We trust that what he did actually gave me the opportunity to step into salvation through the blood of Christ on the cross. And we believe that death has no hold on us even if this physical body withers and fades because of the resurrection and the empty tomb of Jesus. We follow him in that process if we believe in him and give our lives to him. That is the reason why we don't have to fear. But when the emotions and feelings aren't there, when it feels like you're walking through this dry spell or this desert land, you can trust in the fact of God's Word that gives us a myriad of promises. It says, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. I'm walking with you. The psalmist, you hear me say this often too. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Why? Because he knows. He doesn't say, because I feel like you're there. Because I know you're with me. All right. I beat a dead horse on that one. Let's go on to the next, and I'll close this out. Fear. What are we to fear? We are to fear God. We are to fear God. And that's the kind of fear that I talked about. It's not this fear that God's going to punish us, but it's this fear of displeasing him. Do you remember, when you were kids, and maybe you're still kids today, and you're within an earshot of me, you get to an age where you don't really care what your parents think. That's called rebellion, and you kind of push back against those boundaries. But before you get to that point, it's usually in the early elementary years. Your parents, no matter how God-awful, horrible they may have been, they are like, they are godlike to you in a lot of ways. Because we, we, we find ourselves wanting to please, wanting to do, wanting to, to gain their approval. One of the sad testimonies of life is it was I was in my early 40s before my dad passed away. He died a couple years ago and prior to that a couple more years he had just given his life to Christ. Most of his life he lived like a heathen. You know, he just did not live a godly life cuz he didn't believe in God. And growing up in that kind of environment, I had the onslaught of my dad a lot against me because I was feeling a call into ministry. I've been a pastor for 20 some years. He thought it was stupid. And so guess what the conversations ended up being in those early days of how stupid this is. You get, get a real job, quit milking people for money. that's why I'm in this. Because it's huge money-making business. You want to get into you wanna make a lot of money? Don't get into the ministry. I'm just telling you. All right. Side note here, real quick. I wanted to please, I found myself in my late 30s, early 40, like 40 years old. Still, in the presence of my dad, I would revert back to my nine-year-old self. You need counseling, Brandon. Well, you're probably right. But here's what I would do, is because I would want to continue to please him. And here I am in my 40-year-old body, reverting back to this childhood, trying to please, trying to please. See, this is this idea. There is a God who is pleasable. He sees you. He loves you. He desires you. He died for you to give you eternal life. When we try to gain approval from others, we get lost every time. But when we come into the presence of God through Jesus Christ, He says, Oh, welcome home. Welcome home. Fear not. Fear not. But love me and submit yourself to me willingly. You want to gain your life? Lose it for my sake. You want to lose your life? Hang on to it as tight as you can in fear of everything else. I told you a story earlier, let me close with this, about Hugh Latimer. There was another guy by the name of Phil, not Phil, sorry, John Philpott. John Philpott was another lesser known reformer that came after Latimer, but was under the reign of Queen Mary. Queen Mary did not like that her father had changed from breaking away from the Catholic Church. Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, and the Catholic Church would not let that happen. So where did the Church of England sprout from? King Henry VIII and his selfish desire to divorce his wife. Church history's great. Check it out. And so he says, fine, if you won't let me, Divorce my wife, then we'll have nothing to do with the Catholic Church. They break off the Church of England. Guess who's the head of the Church of England? The King! Ah! King Henry VIII becomes head of the Church, and now he can annul his own marriage. Voila! And so, but there's still a residue of Catholic churches still in England at the time. And so Queen Mary comes on. She obviously didn't agree with her father's choice to break away from the Catholic Church. And as a good little Catholic, she decided she was going to try to reinstitute and revive the Catholic Church again in England. However, now that there was a Church of England, there was a bit of a political issue going on. So she couldn't shut down the Church of England. So in the process, you now have this Protestant Reformation happen. And you have these weirdos called the Protestants. And they're breaking out on the scene, and they're breaking away from the Catholic and from the Church of England. And so Queen Mary, or Bloody Mary, decides she's going to enact even more persecution. She starts burning people at the stake left and right. The smell of burning flesh is constant in England during that time, especially in London. Phil Philpot is one of these guys that's written in history in the Fox's Book of Martyrs that actually would not back down from preaching about Jesus and coming to Christ and living by Scripture only and not the church's mandates. And she says, I've had enough of you. And she sentences him to be burned at the stake. Guess what he does? He walks not being drugged. He doesn't have to be bound. He says, no, 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 don't tie me up. I will willingly walk to my fate. And he walks to the place where he will be executed. He kneels down and kisses the stake upon which he's to be burned. And he willingly accepts his fate of death at a young age, even in the face, even in the face of people who, like Queen Mary, are trying to snuff out this idea that Jesus is the only way. Again, what are your allegiances? Not that you have to stand on the street corner beating people over the head with Bible verses. As our worship team comes forward, let me kind of close this out here. I'm not saying you need to stand on the street corner, hand out tracts. I'm not saying you need to go door-to-door knocking. But are you living a life of faith? Can people tell there's something different about you? Are you light and salt? Are you light and salt? Are you the one who goes out into the world and your light shines so bright you don't even have to say a word, but there's something unique and different about you that is attractive and people saying, what is it about you? What is it about you? If you cannot be distinguished from the regular Joe walking down the street, then why? You see, we've had a year of joy. This is 2020, our theme has been joy and God makes me laugh so much because he tests that is it really can can you have the joy unspeakable and full of glory can you i'm not saying god has poured out his wrath upon us and we have pandemics and huge dust storms from the sahara and locusts and all of that it feels like we're in egypt can you still have joy amidst all of these seeming <laughs> catastrophic events that seem to be on our on our stage Can you be light and salt amidst all of this darkness? Can you weed through what is truth and what is false and actually stand firm in the truth? I hope so. Let me pray over you. Father, thank you for these men and women. I thank you for these young men and women too who sit in our pews. And I know, God, that you gave your life for all of them but not all are willing to receive. And I pray that as you work on us and through us, not only through the cross, but through the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would come to a saving knowledge of grace through Jesus Christ and submit ourselves to you. That God, through the faith of a mustard seed, it doesn't have to be a full onslaught of faith, but just even a little bit, you can move mountains, and so can we. I pray, Heavenly Father, that in this place today, that you would stoke the fires of our heart through belief, but also so that we can be light and salt in the world around us to give people a reason for the hope we have in you. Help us to be loyal to you, come what may, and pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Main is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.